Good afternoon all, Steve Parisi here with IBC Global. Hope your day is off to a great start. So today we have a guest, a good friend of mine, someone we've, that I've known for a while now. I'm looking at the calendar, it's 2022. We met, I think back in 2013 or 2014. This is a little bit before I got married. Um, Kaleche Awuji. Kaleche, how are you today? Hi, thank you Steve, how are you? Good, <laughs> good up here, nice and brisk up here. The, today but you know we're we're close to spring so I'll take it well thanks so much for your time today um, I think we're gonna have a lot of fun talking about all things cash value life insurance but um, I do appreciate your time especially on a weekend um, just to connect and uh, be a guest today I appreciate it thank you thank you well I guess before we get into everything um, just to kind of give a, an intro for everyone so they can understand you your journey and learning about cash value life insurance and such um, if you want to give a little bit of background on yourself uh, just your profession and such and then we'll segue into how you discovered whole life insurance and the cash value benefit oh, I'm well my, my name is uh, Kalichi Wuji. I'm a China medicine doctor. I work down in Memphis, Tennessee. I am what they call a, a hospitalist, which means I essentially see patients who are ill in the hospital. Now, I'm self-employed, so I run my own business through that uh, you know, portal, as it were. I have a, a nurse practitioner that helps me uh, run my business. So essentially, as a self-employed doctor, I obviously I'm looking for ways to you know maximize my tax savings and you know investment opportunities and all that. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And how long? So how long have you been self-employed? Because if any physicians are listening, I mean that that's not an easy journey to go being in medicine and self-employed. Like that has a number of challenges. I think more than other industries, just with the amount of pressure you get, just with health insurance and such. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Really, I've been self-employed from the get-go. I, I finished residency in 2015, and I you know, essentially started working for you know in one of the national hospitalist um, companies at first, and then later on went into uh, what they call locum tenants, and then did that for two years, and then from there went into a, a model where I would see patients in the hospital, and then I would build the insurance companies directly, and then get you know. From patients insurance companies, yes. Got it. What was um, more challenging, meeting with patients on a regular basis or getting money from insurance companies when you build them? It's, it's, it's a tough business to be in. Yeah. Um, more so these days. Insurance companies are kind of squeezing more and more and reducing reimbursement rates every year. It's just ridiculous. And of course, inflation is skyrocketing. Yeah. And reimbursement rates are not rising to meet those inflation rates. So we have this discrepancy. You're not making as much money, but the cost of everything is going way up. And now they're threatening to increase interest rates as well. So anyway. Yeah, that creates challenges. We take it as it comes and we make adjustments with the tools we have to work with, right? That's how I look at it. Certainly. Well, let's get into to, um, how we connected. So you were in residency up until 2015 and we met, I think it was toward the tail end of 2013 or 2014. Yeah. About, yeah, about cash value life insurance of all things. And what you shared with me briefly before we, we started this, this uh, recording or this podcast was 
how you remembered it, which I didn't know <laughs> when I caught you off guard there uh, that day. So if you want to kind of get into that, because you had a background with respect to cash value life insurance, you had dug into it more than most people I connected with. But I remember the day I called, that's when I still worked in Allentown. That was at the office where my role was designing policies for corporations, the executives, maximum cash accumulation. So I remember sitting in the office, calling you that day, but then what, what do you recall from that day? Because that was interesting when you just shared it with me. <laughs> right, right. So essentially, um, I was still in residency then. That was in 2013, like you said. I... So I guess I got a bit of a head start, I guess. So I am obviously not, uh, you know, Native American. I'm Nigerian, you know, by, 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 although I'm now a naturalized American. But I actually came from... UK to do my residence in the US. So I had a little bit of money saved up, you know, and I was looking to where to invest it and all that. So I did a little research about uh, life insurance policies and all that as a way of A, obviously protecting my family, B, legacy wealth building and all that. And I got sold a policy, an IUL policy, um, before I met you while I was still in residency. And I obviously, in retrospect, I realized it wasn't the best thing for me, you know. So I tried to get out of that, but before then, I opened a second smaller whole life policy with Lafayette Life, which wasn't the best design, you know, in the 1930 uh, design. I think it was more like the 60 40 kind of design that would break even in the you know, seventh or eighth year. So that was where I was. And then you essentially cold called me, right? And you know, it's a very fortunate thing I answered because normally even till now, I do not answer cold calls. I just, I can't do it. But I was sleeping at the time. You woke me up. I was disoriented <laughs> and I took the call. And I, you know, still in my half asleep state, we were talking and talking. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And then of course I became very interested. So that's kind of how the whole thing worked out. Yeah, gotcha. It was, it was fortune or fate because typically, like I said, if you had called me today, I wouldn't have taken that call. Yeah, and we never would have met. Yeah, and over the years, I mean, I've gotten tons of ideas from you. One, just the experiences we've looked at a number of different options, um, but just your conversations, ideas from a marketing standpoint, um, because you've got a good feel as far as what a lot of consumers, people who are interested in policies are looking for. You'll ask those questions um, that sometimes people think about or they hear the question and think that's a good question to ask. You'll ask them like, okay, if he's asking it, that means other people are thinking about it. So then I'll go create a video. Hey, here's a question we got. And it gets a lot of interest just from people doing research on cash value insurance. And that's one thing I've always appreciated about our conversation. So that's my long version of saying I'm glad you picked up the phone. <laughs> Certainly. I'm glad too, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's been a, a fun Fun past seven years. Um, some of the policies that you have in force just are entering their eighth year now and just measuring the annual internal rate of return. They're doing what they're supposed to when I look at them, which is which is good. Um, but let's let's touch on this. So you mentioned when you were in residency, when you came over to the U.S., you started doing research and finance and such. How and when did you discover cash value life insurance? Was that just through research online? What had initially interested you in that? Right. So I, 
I've always been interested in investments and maximizing money and what they call what people call these days financial engineering or hacking, yeah. you know, whatever you want to call it. So I have always wanted to in as much as I love medicine and I like practicing medicine, it's a very time consuming, you know, profession. And I've always wanted to kind of work less and make more, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I've always been doing research into finding ways to maximize my returns on investment. And the more research I did, I, of course, came into the inevitable uh, infinite banking concept, which, of course, by itself is an intriguing uh, concept. But if you look at all the vehicles out there, whole life, the properly designed, again, the properly designed whole life policy really is one of the best ways to practice the infinite banking concepts, which basically many, is many things for many people. But for me, it's a way for me to make my money do more than one thing at a time. You know? yeah. right? So you take your money, put it in this policy, it's growing, and at the same time, you can leverage that cash value to do other things. Mm -hmm. The goal being, as long as the other thing you're doing over here is a worthwhile endeavor that over time can allow you to return from here to pay back the policy loan over time here, in the end, you end up with two assets, right? That is awesome. That is leverage right there. Yeah. So yeah. Actually, that's, what, that's, what, that's essentially what it is. You know, for me, so the IUL I opened a while ago, because of the lack of guarantees, because of the unpredictability of the performance over time, wasn't a good. I realized, of course, later on after I opened and I wasted, I lost nine thousand dollars on that. But it's, it's money well. It's a good education, I guess. Gotcha, gotcha. So, okay. mm -hmm. so my interest really was to answer your question was I've always been interested in ways to maximize my return on my investments, especially my money. That way. By the time I'm in my 50s or 60s, I can drastically reduce my work exposure and still not lose, you know, income. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, another question I have or question slash story is we first connected, discussed cash value life insurance, kept in touch over a couple of years but you didn't start a, a significant size policy like your real policy, at least with me when we worked together, until about two two years after the fact. I think it might have been early 2016. Um, part of me remembers that because you have the old product series of that, the product with Guardian. That's the 2016 series. It's no longer around anymore, but it's a nice option. So where I want to go with that is you started a policy after you're complete with residency and your income started to shoot up, which I do want to hit on a point here because a lot of people often look at this concept, look at cash value life insurance and think, hey, I should start now just to try and tough it through with a small amount of money. And then when my money increases, then I can start a larger policy. And if that's your, if you have ambitions to do that, there's nothing wrong with it. But I'll say that you're in a much better position from a financial health standpoint where you 
just kept calm and said, you know what, I want to wait until my income shoots up. And then when I've got the money to work with, then I'm going to start putting it to work where I want. Um, so I, th I think that that's a good idea. I like generating the income first and then using it and not making myself uncomfortable, making the product feel like a burden or anything like that, which happens quite a bit. Um, but when you were in residency, had you considered starting additional policies at that point in time? Or is your mindset, no, I'm going to wait until I, I've got my job secure, my income's where I want it, and then I'll start a real policy? All right. Yeah. So I was very much of the mindset of starting early because these policies, again, have a huge timeline component to it. So the longer on or the older a policy is, the better it performs, which is why I haven't canceled any of my old Lafayette policies and all that. So even if they are poorly designed, so to speak, over time, that it will make up for that. No. So I'm honestly of the mindset of people starting when they can. The key is to start as early as possible and get used to the concept. Yeah. You don't have to have like a boatload of money to start a policy. The reason I didn't start with you was because at the time I met you, I had made several mistakes. Don't forget. I was already committed to two policies. Remember, I had the IUL and then I had the whole life policy as well. So uh, I didn't start another one with you at that point because at that point I was already overextended. Okay. Remember, it's got to be comfortable. You have to put away money that you're, you, know, you can put away easily without being uncomfortable, like I said. So at that point, I already had two policies already. Even with my, I was making... To five hundred dollars a month in residency, so you know, I mean, you you are paid just enough to stay alive in residency, and after that, you know, everything goes up. Yeah, and then so, if you start, mm -hmm. yeah. go ahead. I didn't, I didn't start a project with you because I couldn't financially. That's why. Got it. But I knew I would. Mm -hmm. So I Got started it. once I could, you know, just when I finished two years later. Yeah. Which, I mean, in hindsight, I think that's a a great move, especially when people look at these strategies. I mean, you've got. Long term, they're fantastic because it continues to compound. It's a safe liquid, tax-free area to position money, all that good stuff You know uh, that we talk about all the time. But the worst part about any policy is the first year because whatever that base premium is, is not showing up in cash value. Sometimes it's the first and second, depending on the company and product. But my point where I'm going with this is when people are first looking at policies, if that premium, whatever dollar size that premium is, feels like a burden to someone and they feel like they might not be able to meet it, they're going to be stressed out, have anxiety over it. Like in my mind, we want to sit there, look at it. And if it's if you're not ready yet, like that's OK, we'll keep in touch. And when you're ready, then hit it hard, because when people try to, to bite off more than they can chew, more often than not, that's where things go south. So, I mean, it. I think it was a good move waiting until you're you were ready and then really hitting a home run with it, in my opinion. Yeah. It's, it's scalable. So yeah. these policies are designed to, to, to your to your so if you make, I don't know, thirty thousand dollars a year and you can afford to put away five thousand a year, then you you'd use that. You 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 design a policy around five thousand, you know. Um, I don't know if there are any kind of bare minimums that companies have have to have. Depends on yeah, depends on your age more than anything. But I mean, you can you can get an individual who's sixty five years old, and we can still have a minimum base premium of one thousand dollars at age sixty five. Right, right. So that means if they said, "Hey, I can only put in 
$10,000 per year and I don't want to commit to that, you could in theory have a policy with a very close to $1,000 minimum. That's what you're committed to and then add up to 10K per year. And if you do it right, that'll look good too from a cash accumulation standpoint, similar to the guy who puts in, if it's 100,000 or 500,000 per year, whatever, if everything's set up equally from a, a ratio standpoint where the money's going, then that consumer will see their value there immediately and long-term, which is important. Yeah, it's very scalable. That's what I love about the design. It's very scalable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of flexibility. And most of your policies are set up like that with all carriers. Um, your other agents and when we work together, that flexibility, you and I discussed it was something that was very important where you're not committed to these huge annual premiums. You've got minimum premiums set up. And then with that paid up additions rider, you add it when you want to add it as your income can fluctuate being self-employed. Some months are going to rock and some other, some other months won't rock. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Definitely. Well, let's um let's hit on some things if you can if you can recall some of this when you first when we first connected and even throughout the years of you getting familiar with cash value life insurance, what are some things that you like a lot? But more importantly, what are some things you dislike? Whether it's the actual product or sometimes how it's perceived by individuals. Um, call it pros and cons. If you're talking to your best friend who's interested in, hey, I'm doing research on whole life insurance. You know, I've heard a lot of things about it that are good. I've seen banks and corporations use it. How would you advise them or what are some things you would mention? Hey, it is good here, but for a, from an awareness standpoint, here are some things I've learned as I went. All right, so I will, whole life, properly designed whole life policies, uh, what I don't like about is their marketing sucks. I agree. And I say that because they don't do a very good job with transparency in terms of how these things actually work. Okay. Um, until I met you, it was like a black box. Of course, I did a lot of research online, but the problem with online research is that there's a lot of junk out there. That's the problem. In fact, a lot of people seem to think that it's a very expensive, of course, you heard the term, buy term and you know, invest difference or whatever. Um, while that does have some merits, the problem with whole life is that there isn't a lot of transparency in the inner workings of an actual policy. That's just the, that's for me is a huge, if people understood more about the way it works and they would manage their expectations better and understand way up front what to expect over time and then make a decision if they want to do it or not. Yeah. But when you sell a policy like it's some sort of, you know, answer to all your problems and all that and all that. And this person jumps all jump, which is what I, it's happened to me, exactly. You jump in and then boom, the reality of making premium payments that are fixed, that are up there. And then you look at your balance, you see a measly amounts at the end of the year, immediate problems. It's pain. Mm -hmm. yes. yes. So what I don't like, number one, a lack of, Transparency in the workings of a policy, in the way they report numbers. If I get an annual statement, it's gibberish. You yeah. know, you can't 
it, it doesn't make sense the way my brokerage account makes sense. I open up my brokerage account, I see numbers. I see it going up, I see it going down, I see it looks nice. Yeah. It makes it, it connects emotionally. There is no emotional connection with the policy. I'm engaged because I met you, you are able to break down these concepts in a way that makes sense to me. And of course, I'm looking very long term and it makes sense. So I'm a very unusual client, so to speak. Most people don't take the time to learn what it takes. They don't go, they don't go deep. Many people still think that a dividend rate of 6% means your money will grow at 6% a year. Yeah. Nothing could be farther from the truth. That, yeah. And we can hit on that. Thanks for mentioning that. Even yeah. agents that market IBC and infinite banking and bank on yourself and all that nonsense, your money is going at 5%. It is not. Yeah. It's at 5%. <laughs> at all. Okay. I- yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, I'll add, if I were to go into a corporation or a bank, so we do work with a bank, if I go in to try and say, hey, here's the gross crediting rate, a dividend rate, they're going to look at the net growth rate. I'm going to get thrown out of that conference room so quickly. It's not even going to, like, no conversation is going to occur because they want the net numbers, get to the point and how they would explain it, especially the owner at the bank I'm thinking of. He goes, don't play games. He put some other words in there that I don't use. Um, but he's like, don't play games and such. Like they just want the straight answers. Like you have to, when you work people at that level. So I guess how I view it is just always make it that transparent because that's what everyone's looking for. And to your point, there's a lot of, you can call it gibberish, like an annual statement. You can talk about the dividend. There's so much to it that can be confusing. And when it's, if it's overwhelming, usually people just throw their hands up and say, forget it. There's too much to it. I'm not even going to bother looking at it. Let me look at something else. And that, to your point, where the, the, the industry is poorly marketed, that happens a lot as a result. Forget it. That feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why they can't just be straight up. Why is there a discrepancy between a so-called dividend rate? And did they hype that dividend rate so high, but it doesn't, it's not connected. In, in real terms to the actual growth of your cash value. If you're quoting a 6% dividend rate, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the best way to explain it, and, and let's hit on this point too, is a dividend rate on a life insurance policy is always, always a gross rate that is applied after any insurance expenses, mortality charges, everything that comes with the actual life insurance policy if I die a death benefits paid out. So, a dividend rate is a gross rate, call it 6%. That may net out to an actual internal rate of return, net growth rate of 4 to 4.5%. They should that, say that mm-hmm. instead of the hyped up growth I, rate. I agree. I, I agree. And where you can take it a level further with the amount of confusion that goes into it is when you look at the life, insur- uh, life insurance illustration, Let's assume you've got an old product where it has a guaranteed rate of 4%. Let's, let's say it's a new product with a guaranteed rate of 3%. I have a total dividend interest rate with a company of 6%. The dividend column on a life insurance illustration will not reflect the dividend rate that that company has of 6%. It only reflects the surplus of 3%, not the guaranteed piece. They don't include the guaranteed rate in the, in the dividend column which so many people, especially technical individuals that want to understand how it works, they're looking at it and saying, it doesn't make sense. Look, well, the reason why is they don't include the guaranteed rate in it. 
and it's just the surplus and it's and it's a gross rate as well so it is very very confusing where it takes those additional layers or additional bullet points just to explain how they work and again from the the policyholders perspective that means there's going to be a time investment no matter how it works whether i'm going to read about it whether i'm going to consume videos whether i'm going to talk to an agent like there's going to be a time time investment especially if you want to understand how it works nobody has time to do that that's no, that's it like nobody has time every consumer just wants the policy that quote unquote does what it's supposed to do and yeah. when they don't see that or understand it over time they get frustrated and they get biased remorse and they drop off that's it that's it right there. And Online we, and they splash whole life. Correct. If somebody has a bad taste in their mouth, that's going to make it very, very easy for the, the anti-whole life advisor people, because insurance agents and advisors fight with each other more than they should. But if someone has a bad experience in one field or the other, that is, and they go post something online, that's going to be used very, very heavily for the other, you know, the opponent of one industry versus the other. And that, you know, and it was due to a lack of transparency, expectations weren't set properly. How I look at it, if I were to market it from the cash value benefit, and there's compliance and such, and it's not considered an investment, which is why there's this confusion to it. But if I were to market it, I would really, really focus on the internal rate of return because that's just exactly what I'm earning. Well, it matters. Yeah, correct. Like it is what it is. And at the end of the day, you've got another problem where illustrations project one thing, and they don't always come true or they rarely come true. Actual performance to say, hey, if a policy is set up properly with a company that has always delivered, I like those four major mutuals for that reason, what you can expect in reality is somewhere between a net IRR of three to five percent. And if it's done properly, it kind of is what it is. Like it's not gonna earn six to eight percent. Some did that were issued back in the 70s and 80s, but that was a much, much different time with dividend rates back then. But it, it kind of is what it is and just make it as transparent as possible. And then if someone wants to take a deep dive, then go deep with them, but simplify it as much as we can. And the IRR for the individuals focused on cash value, that's the best way, at least in my mind, just from experience and such, that's very, very effective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fun stuff. So I agree with you that I do not like how the industry markets cash value life insurance, the lack of transparency, and the dividend is one fantastic example of that. Um, Let's touch on a little bit of policy use. So I know you've used your policies heavily. You've shared a lot of the details with me through the loan feature, um, and you've recently made an adjustment with respect to how you use loans. So for years, call it the past seven to eight years when you would leverage your cash value life insurance policies through the loan feature typically what did you do that for is it for business business investments real estate investments and such and did you always borrow directly against your life insurance policies right so initially um when i started out i obviously read like everybody else you know nelson nash's book and i was a little impractical. Um, if, you, if, you, if you read that book, you know that Nelson, there's a part where he says, income should equal premium. Yeah. Essentially, the way I understood it, maybe he meant it differently, but the way I understood it was, I meant it, I understood it to mean that 
really, at some point, all of your income should go into your insurance policy. So if you make $100, put $100 into your policy. That way, every dollar starts working for you forever, automatically. And then from there, you can now take out loans to live your life. It sounds very nice in theory. Here's a problem with that. The interest payments on those loans will eat you alive if you're not careful. So initially, for the first, I would say, almost two, three years, you can, and that's it. So you're talking about a lot of money. I literally did that. Almost all, remember, I'm self-employed, so I had the ability to do that. All the money I earn, the government doesn't put their hands on it until when I, you know, file my taxes. So I was able to put almost all of my income in, dump them into my policies and then take out loans to live my life, living expenses, pay taxes, make my investments, you know, 401k contributions and all that. So the net result of that is that over the first two, three years, I owed a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. And then the interest started knocking on the door. Now remember, they say the interest policy loans, uh, you know, simple interest, and it will compound on your ass if you do not pay the interest. Correct. If it's not paid, you it compounds. Make sure that the interest does, the loan does not compound on you by paying the interest, at least the interest due every year on those loans. Mm -hmm. So what started to happen was that over time, I started to have a lot of interest loans due annually. And I have Guardian, I have... Um, New York Life, and I have, uh, uh, well, those are the two, the two main ones I have. I have some term policy with mass mutual, but the two heavy ones were Guardian. Guardian, um, I love Guardian the most because it has the most flexible features. You know, you can pay back, pay, you know, pay your premiums. And so I love, but the downside of that is that Guardian has the highest interest rates. I think my policy has like 7.4% interest rate. 7.4% if you pay it. If it's not paid, it's got an 8% fixed loan interest rate. It's one of the older contracts, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So my, so you can imagine paying 7.4% on, say, a million dollars. Yeah. That is going to be $4,000 interest only. Mm -hmm. So obviously, recently what I've done was um, there's this thing they call um, insurance-backed products. So you introduced me to... Um, a bank that is able to take over the loans outstanding on my life insurance policy and then charge me a much lower interest rate. So the, it's called an e-blocks, insurance-backed line of credits. Yep. So um, I was able to recently make that change. And then now I pay the interest to as a line of credit, evergreen line of credits to my to the bank instead of the to direct the insurance company. So they made me whole, paid off all my policy loans. So my I have an IIR earning within the Guardian policy, but I pay the bank a much lower interest rate of 3% now. Yeah, yeah. Refinanced it more or less. And thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. 
because what a lot of people do with those insurance-backed lines of credits, I'll, I'll f- refer to them frequently as cash value collateral loans. It's exactly how you described it. Um, is typically they have ca- a cash value life insurance policy. They have X amount of dollars and they assign it as collateral and then they get a line of credit based off their cash value. There's no loans outstanding prior to approaching the bank. Um, what a lot of people aren't aware of, and I've seen some people's eyes really light up to say, wait a minute, if I have a large loan balance, and I'm paying 8%, say it's a more recent policy, it's 5 or 6%, whatever, I can refinance that policy loan with the bank. The bank pays the policy loan off, they contact the insurance carrier, pay it off, and now your loan is with the lender at, just like you said, a rate of 3%. Puts you in a, a nice position. So now you are paying that 3% cost where your, your policies are a bit older. When we looked at the annual IRR, it's just over 4% now. So you're actually in a position where we can look at the numbers, which a lot of people do, and you can say, okay, what did I pay in interest this year? 3%, what am I earning this year? Just about 4%, about 4.1. So, okay, it actually makes sense. Like I've got a positive spread as opposed to the before, where if I'm earning 4%, but paying seven, or even if it's a newer policy and paying five, like that is the pain point I've seen expressed from so many people when they hear pump money in and borrow it back out. It's like, but I'm but I'm not earning as much as what I'm paying. And that's where a lot of pain exists. So it's just, again, showing that upfront, being transparent with it, showing it as an option in addition to other options. And then this way, at the end of the day, if you know what's what's available, you'll make the decision that you know is best for you because it's your money at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's, it's, and remember, this is a very long-term play. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to call it a forever play. You know, it, you're going to have these policies forever, right? You, you pass away. So, and you don't really get the benefit of that accumulation until much decades later. You know? yeah. So, the amount of interest you pay along the way matters, you know? And this whole nonsense about you're paying yourself back. No, you're not paying yourself back. You're paying your money to the insurance company, mm-hmm. all right? You're not paying yourself back with interest. That is all, other marketing nonsense. You know, you're just making your policy whole again over time. That's it. Correct. Yeah, I I hear you there. Um, The whole concept of paying yourself back is just adding more money to PUAs with loan payments. And I know you know that already. You can just add PUAs anytime as well. Um, That's just if you want to treat it as a cycle. But um, the loan itself, you're not paying yourself back. The actual loan principle, you're paying back to the insurance company and obviously back to the general fund or whatever they call it. Yeah. Correct. The, The loan principle goes back to the carrier and the the interest on that policy loan goes to the insurance carrier. Correct. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Just like a, a loan against a, if we took a mortgage out, right? Money goes to the bank, interest goes to the bank as well. I get the appreciation on my real estate all the way through, assuming it appreciates. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Hopefully it does. So I guess just to uh, to touch on this, so we talked about the marketing, some of the things that you dislike about the, the um, industry and such. Anything that really jumps out at you that you like a lot, you've leveraged your policies and that, so you kind of touched about something, how you've been using the money, but something you say, hey, if I could do this over again, here's exactly what I would do. I mean, honestly, Obviously, if I did if I did all over again, I wouldn't have gone into that IEL policy. Obviously, right. <laughs> that's, that's that's a given. If I could do it all over again, I would have 
design every single policy I have with a 1090 split design and not because I have some old Lafayette policies that were not well designed. I have a couple, one for myself, one for my wife. Then luckily after that, I found you and everything else after that is well designed. So thank God for that. So I met you, eh, not at the beginning per se, but I met you after I made a couple of mistakes. So if I could do it all over again, I would go back in time and then start afresh with you or someone that designs policies like you going forward. Um, what else? What I like about it, obviously, what I love about this thing is because it's a like it's like a Swiss army knife, right? I'm not just having life insurance for my family. That's that. I have a way to leverage my savings, making my money work in two places at the same time. That is the problem with this is that it's not something that you is immediately apparent. You know, in 20, 30, 40 years. I don't know what's going to happen by then, of course. I don't know what's going to happen with inflation rate. I don't even know what's going to happen with the dollar. But let's assume things are as they are today, as back in, in that time. You're going to have a lot of money because you've been able to be smart about leveraging money here and leveraging money elsewhere. So, for example, I would uh, I, I, I do I, I invest in the stock market, right? And I expect to get anywhere from 10 to 12% a year in the stock market. So if I borrow money from my policy and invest in the stock market long term, and over time it grows at, let's just assume 10% a year, and my money is growing at an IRR of 4% here. So my true return is actually 14% combined. Mm-hmm. It's going at 4% here, it's going at 10% here. And then, of course, I'm going to pay back the policy loan over time. So in 30 years, the policy loan is, is, is paid off and my money is, is grown at it. So it's, it can be very powerful. Yeah. And that's it for me. It's real being smart. Well, yeah, you're leveraging it. Kind of, kind of like a high-yield savings asset that just continues to compound at the end of the day. And the death benefit, which plays in nicely just from an income protection standpoint and a legacy plan. Like the death benefit does have a lot of value, again, long-term. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. You mentioned one thing there too, investing in the stock market. You know, I'm I'm a fan, to call it, of just diversification. Um, and where I'm going with this is in the industry, a lot of times people are advised to go in one direction or the other. Stock market's the best thing or life insurance is the best thing. And again, like we meant, I mentioned earlier, they fight with each other, insurance agents and financial advisors, when they shouldn't come together. Where I have seen people most successful is when they leverage, leverage their money and do both, or as they're diversified. They've got money in the market. They've got money in life insurance. They've got money in real estate, their business, everything. You know, and instead of taking opinions of other professionals and such, they'll do the research. Or they'll work with someone who's very, very factual, look at the pros and cons, and then make the decision say, okay, I want a percentage of my money in area A, another percentage in B, and then a little bit in C and D, and that's what I'm going to do. And they pivot as they go. Um, but I'm I'm a big fan of diversification. And life insurance is all all our company does. Like we, we used to do some other stuff and like, you know what? Let's just focus on what we're good at. And we've got a specific niche on cash value life insurance, specifically whole life. If somebody's interested in something else, at this point in time, we defer it out or refer it out, I should say, because it's not our it's not our specialty. So we're gonna have a laser focus. 
And I mention that is because that's our focus. That's what we're best at. And when someone's interested in something else, we are not going to try and talk them out of it. I hate that so much when someone does that to me. It's like, just give me the pros and cons. I want to understand what it is and how it works. Don't try and scare me away from it. What are the pros and cons? I can figure things out for, for myself. Um, don't sell me on doing it or not doing it, I should say. Um, but diversifying, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is good for people to hear to say, hey, I've got money and life insurance, but there are other things I can do and I can use my life insurance policies as a means of leverage to build my overall net worth. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I, I often, you know, it's very important because you're going to succeed based on your, you know, your main areas of interest and education. Yeah. I have three main areas of business or investment or whatever you want to call it. So I have my medical practice, which is where I get, you know, most of my income at least now. It is great, but the disadvantage is that it's very time consuming. My goal is over time, and by time I mean 10, 20 years, to cut down on that and then have my investment income replace my medical income. Because when I'm 50, when I'm 60, I am not going to do the same amount of work when I'm in my 40s or 30s. That is just, your body will over time betray you. I mean, as a doctor, I know that more than anybody else. So the goal should be that over time, you do less of this and more of this, yeah. which is less time consuming, easier and more cerebral. The medicine thing, you have to spend more time, you have to go around on patients, spend all day and all that stuff, which is great. I love my I love my, my profession, but it's not a it's there's only sadder to see someone who is in the 70s that still has to go to work. It's just sad, you know. Yeah. So that's my goal. So I, I, I make my income from my medicine, medical practice. And then I invest it in two main areas of interest. I put it in life insurance, not as an investment, but as a store of wealth and a safe haven. And then I do the leverage thing. I take the money out of there and then I invest in the stock market. And when I mean by investor, I don't even mean buying stocks. I mean, I sell options. I sell premium in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Again, for income. When those options expire, I take the money and I sell more options. And I, and I rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. That's it. I don't do really do real estate except for my, I own my house. I own my own house. Other than that, I don't do real estate. Why? Because it's not my thing. I don't, yeah. even though I know it's very tax efficient, blah, 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 blah. I've tried it. I didn't like it. Yeah. I just, like I can't force myself to do real estate. I just don't like it. Yeah. So, so that's it. I, I, my life is simple. Medical practice, put money in life insurance, take it out, put it in the stock market and that's it. You know, yeah. Over time, I'll pay back my loans, and then I have a big, massive pile of money in my life insurance policies and the stock markets. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and then start to take income from it. I remember that when we first connected. What you had mentioned is you said, hey, I'm going to work extremely hard the next 10 years and just crush it. And after that, take my foot off the gas a bit. And then it was around year 20 or so that this was when we spoke about seven years ago. Um, then I'll start to draw income from my investments, also for my life insurance policy. What would that look like? How much do I need to build it up so I can take X amount of dollars? Looking at the future models. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with my plan, of course, is 
inflation and interest yeah. rate. That will destroy, as it were, if interest rates rise significantly, that will affect my policy loan repayment schedule. I have to pay them off faster. Mm -hmm. um, if inflation rates goes out of control, I don't know how that's going to affect because life insurance is very fixed and all that. They tend to invest in fixed interest rate products like 30-year treasury bonds and, of course, huge uh, REITs and real estate and all that stuff. So I don't know how that's going to affect. I guess that's the question I have for you. What do you think is going to happen in the future? Say, let's say I assume we'll have runaway inflation in five years. And yeah. interest rates skyrocket, you know, overnight. Yeah. That life insurance tends to be like a, an iceberg. It doesn't move as quickly. So I think in the short term, it's going to take a hit. It, it definitely would, especially just from a growth rate perspective. You'll look at it and say the IRR is not keeping up with inflation. Here's here's what I'll mention on this too, because uh, this question has come up quite a bit um, as far as if we deal with hyperinflation and if interest rates shoot up, what will happen with life insurance policies and dividend interest rates is if you look at history, when if we go back to the 80s when we had double digit interest rates we also had double di double digit dividend rates with life insurance policies things were different back then though insurance carriers would just buy bonds and hold on to them right you'd see them purchase in the late 80s 30-year bonds that sometimes paid 16 to 18 percent and they'd hold on to them for 30 years like life does not get any easier than that and, we're, and you cannot do that today. We mean, if you don't see 16 to 18% with AAA rated bonds as well, because when an insurance company is going to position money somewhere, yes, they're looking at the returns, but they're also looking at the safety because those safety ratings and those credit, or credit, credit risk ratings are extremely important. When you look at the top carriers, they do not want to take a hit there. They, they can't. That's why they can't plow money into the market on a huge scale. So historically, when in, when interest rates went up, there were safe assets that were available that insurance carriers could acquire and participate in that upswing. That's what happened back then. So why, why I like to start with that is today, if interest rates come up, the big, big question is what assets are available that insurance companies can acquire that are also safe that allow them to keep their AAA ratings without taking on risk? That's the question. And you mentioned REITs and real estate. They've had a ton of success there. Um, some alternatives because they, they do still position money in bonds, but it's not like what they used to. Go back in the 80s and look at their portfolio. You'd often see about 80% of a company's portfolio in bonds. Today, it's often between 50 and 65% as I just think of the major mutuals and it's coming down as those bonds expire. So they've been going to real estate, right? The, the AAA real estate, commercial leases in metro city areas, multifamily units, the REITs, like that, the cash flow is consistent. Other areas, I've seen them invest some in technology, uh, they've been investing in other companies, whether they outright acquire companies or they invest partially or buy a division of companies, not the stock market. It's again, where can we go that is safe? If you're investing in other, other companies, you have a level of control there so you can help push things forward. But to, to get back to your question, if interest rates go up, it's going to depend on what assets are available that are still safe 
that an insurance company can acquire, which will allow them to participate in the upswing with respect to dividend rates coming back up. So whatever they acquire, they're going to have to do slowly. That's, so in the short term, no matter what happens, I think there's going to be uh, an interval of time between when they can make that adjustment to buy into those products that offer higher interest rates versus when they can actually, you know, do. so I, I think I'm not, you know, I, I, which is why I don't, when I say I invest in the stock market, I mostly, if not exclusively sell options. Anyway. So I, I, I sell an option and make, I, I get to pay the premium and I keep that premium and then of course I wait to expire. If you don't expire, want less, I make some changes and all that, but I don't really buy stock and hold because in my mind, that's a soccer's game. Everything is just, you know, if you buy it and hold and it crashes, then you're now in an emotional roller coaster. But, you, but my money is really in cash. I sell premium, I get, it, I, get it, I get money, I keep it. If it expires worthless, great. If it doesn't, I make adjustments to, you know, protect my money and all that. So it's a, it's a thing I've learned over the years. So that's really what I do. I'm an income investor. Everything I do, I want to get income. I get income and I refresh my profits. Income, I think that's the most powerful way to build wealth over time. Yeah. Real estate is great too, but again, I don't like real estate because I don't like dealing with people and tenants and all that stuff. And if you involve a property manager, that lowers your returns. Mm-hmm. They don't take a cut of your profit. So I just don't what I don't like it. I just so this is what, this is what I prefer. So I think my Option selling is inflation-proof because I can increase my income even as interest rates go up. But if stock market crashes, I make more money because premiums go up. Right. People are more afraid, and the premiums go up, and I sell more. On the on the real estate side, on the um, whole life side, interest rates and inflation, I believe, can hurt it in the short term. But I believe over time, it will buy into more products that will, you know, so I'll take a hit on the. I guess whole life side, but on the investment side, I'll be fine. Yeah, and, and then long term. I mean, the one thing that's always proven true with the life insurance long term, it just stays the course and it crosses the finish line when you think it's going to cross the finish line. So it always ends up. It's what, call it old reliable. <laughs> it just keeps moving forward at the end of the day. Well, um, it turns out sexy, but they are stable. You know? They are. Yeah. Just that, that running back that just gets, you know, three to four yards of carry every time you feed him the ball, right, to relate it to football. Well, this was a ton of fun. Um, anything you wanted to add before before I just abruptly end? Anything you wanted to, to touch on? I think we covered everything. Thank you so much for having me. You know, at least I can, I guess, give you a consumer perspective and all that. Um, but if what, what you do as with your company is very, very valuable. I watch your YouTube videos a lot, and I don't think anybody else is doing what you do online, which is essentially give a no holds bad look at the inner workings of the way these policies work, you know, especially with regards to expectations being set and all that stuff, you know. I think the other day we talked about people, you know, saying that the 1090 split is dangerous, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't understand. Well, I guess I understand. You know, obviously they are protecting themselves, and the, the way they protect themselves best is to bash, you know, other people, other example, other designs, all that stuff. I don't see what, how minimizing the premium and maximizing the cash value can ever be a bad thing for the consumer. I really don't, especially if the consumer is interested in cash value accumulation over time. Yeah, <laughs> by far the most efficient design. But I don't get why they say what they say, and they will all come up with their own 
reasons or excuses, but the facts are the facts. The math doesn't lie. But just keep doing what you're doing, you know. I, yeah, I your haters, but you know, yeah. stay the course. That that I think happens in every industry, and you know, and thanks for mentioning that too. I remember that conversation. I I do for about the past two years almost now. I made an effort not to watch a lot of that and call it just negativity because I got absorbed in it, and then I wasn't spending time in the business. So I was thinking, how do I combat this competitor? And I remember watching. Uh, it was an interview with Jeff Bezos, and he said the the key reason Amazon is, is successful. There's several principles, but the key reason is that they have a, an obsessive compulsive focus on the customer as opposed to having a, a, an obsessive compulsive focus on the on competitors. And he, he went further. He said, when I talk to other CEOs, they'll often say that their focus is the consumer. But I can tell when I talk to them that their focus is really their competition. Um, I remember hearing that too. I'm like, you know what? I'm a little guilty of this. This is a couple of years back because I would say, yeah, I focus on the consumer, but I'm always watching competitor stuff saying, okay, we got to combat this. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do that. That's enough. I'm focusing on questions from consumers. I'm not going to watch any of this nonsense anymore. I'll call it nonsense. I don't, <laughs> I haven't looked at it in a while. And, Frankly, what happened too, just when you look at our company and such, the growth and people we started working with just propelled. Because when we hear objections and such, like if I hear an objection from a consumer, I'm interested, I wanna know every single detail, what is their real concern, and then address it properly. If it's from an agent, you know, I don't want to say who cares, but is it is it is it valid or is it more opinion based? Like that's the thing. So that's you know, follow Jeff. He, I think he knows what he's doing when it comes to business. <laughs> yeah. you, can't, you, can't, um, you can't obviously change the way the actual insurance companies do business or market their products, but you kind of suddenly continue to do what you're doing, which is educating your clients on exactly when they say dividend rate, what does that mean? What does yeah. that, how does that translate into my policy? What does it mean when it says I'll do 5% a year? What does it really mean? You know, and then those expectations are managed as time goes on, and that is the best way you can do it, honestly speaking. Yeah, I'm with so, you. More and more, I'm hearing other people, even online, mentioning your company. So, you're, you know, you're really doing well. Gotcha. Well, thank you. No, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the, the support from day one. When you and I connect, I didn't have a company. It was me, just Steve, operating as Steve. I don't think I even had my first part-time assistant the first time we, we spoke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's going back. I was, I'm 33 now, so that means I was around 25 or so. Yeah. Yeah. Did, let me ask this, but then we'll wrap up. Did you know I was that young when we first connected? Yes. <laughs> you did? Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> well, I appreciate the vote of con. You are saying, so if I hear truth out of the mouth of a 10-year-old, it is more than nonsense out of the mother of a 50 year old. I knew you were young, I knew it, but I knew you were saying facts. Got it. And, so I'm, I appreciate that. You know, so. Got it. Yeah. I, I, I will say I had an advantage. Like when we spoke, the place I worked, I picked up a ton of knowledge there. There was an executive at one of the major mutuals, um, in particular, that I had a number of calls of that worked with guys who wrote the illustration software, talked about how dividends were applied to base premium PUA, all this nitty gritty nerdy stuff that I like to, like to consume. Um, that, that helped me. Um, now what I struggled with was communicating it and that's where I just practiced, okay, how do I articulate this in a manner where people can understand it and we're still working on it? Because you mentioned a key point earlier, people don't have time to do all the research 
and a big disadvantage I would say of our company is there's so much content. Videos have been the most effective, but there's still so much content that break down so many topics and who we work with are typically people like yourself that like to do the research and then we'll, we'll coach them through it and we'll speak through it as well. Um, but I would say a weakness of mine are people like my father, love them, but he's more so get to the point, just I want to know what it is. Then a question comes up like, well, here's how it works. I don't care. Just get to the point. Um, the, the quick to the point type of individual is what we're working on with the quick facts and keeping the real quality of the transparency. If you, if you, you know, I've talked to you about this many times. If you can write a book, yeah, write a book. I know there are a lot of books out there, but Nelson Nash's book is so popular because of his brevity. But to be fair, it's not a very, it's not an easy book to read, to be honest. You know? mm -hmm. If you could write a book that breaks down all these concepts, particularly how it can help, not only business, even anyone can use this. That leverage, I'm telling you, is powerful. Yeah. That how to use a life insurance. They trust the product enough to maximize that ability to leverage. They need to know that their money will do A when it's time to do A. They can't have the risk of knowing that in 30 years' time, their money will not do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. You know? If they are fully confident, they'll go all in. Yeah. It's that simple. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I've jotted that down. Thank you. I've got a chapter on that. I think two chapters of that in the book that I just wrote. It's not released yet. We're just updating the chart with the whole 7702 change. Um, but I did complete it and we do, there's a chapter or two, but you, you could write an entire book, just how to use a cash value life insurance policy. How to use it. That's it. And then go through the examples, the concepts, everything that's out there. That would be fun. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. Definitely. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of your day, and, and thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye -bye. Thanks. Bye.